Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's always great to be here together with your people, no matter how small the crowd or how large the crowd, because we know where two or three have gathered together in your name, Lord Jesus, you are present. And we ask you to take full control of our minds now as we look into your word. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher We gladly acknowledge our total dependence upon you, Holy Spirit, to understand anything in the Bible. So please prevent me from leading anyone astray in the interpretation of this passage that we're going to consider together today. And take the message, O Holy Spirit, do your work of convincing us and convicting us of our need of Jesus as not simply our Savior, but also as our Lord. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will be honored today. We pray that you would be obeyed as a result of our having worshipped you today. And we pray that you will be glorified here today. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John. This morning we pick up where we left off last week in the Gospel of John. We find ourselves at the 22nd verse of the Gospel of John. And this morning we're going to consider verses 22 through 29. I will be reading from the New American Standard. And let me read beginning at verse 22 of John 6. The next day the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats And came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Perhaps you've noticed that the Bible has the habit of dividing mankind into two groups. For instance, Jesus talking about the last judgment speaks of how God the Father, as he judges mankind, will divide people into those who are sheep and those who are goats. Those who are goats are those who have not believed and obeyed the gospel of God. Those who are sheep are those who have heard the voice of Jesus and have followed him, and he has given them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, divides 
mankind into what he describes as natural men and spiritual men or natural women and spiritual women. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, for they are spiritually appraised. What he was saying is, that portion of mankind, which probably is the majority of mankind, do not have any facility for understanding God. They are blind. They have been blinded by the God of the sage, namely Satan. But they are also dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sin. Being dead men and women and blind men and women, they have no capacity to know God or to understand the things of the Spirit. They cannot understand the Scriptures. When they are opened, it's like reading a book that makes absolutely no sense to them. Then Paul goes on to write in the 15th verse of 1 Corinthians 2, But the spiritual man appraises all things, and he is one who is not appraised by any man. Any man would be any natural man or even spiritual people for that matter. Spiritual men and women or women and men in whom the Spirit of God has come to dwell. When they have received Christ into their lives, they become the possession of God and Jesus Christ, and they become the repository, the dwelling place, believe it, the dwelling place of Holy Spirit who is fully God, just as God the Father and God the Son are fully God. This passage which we're considering today more subtly but nevertheless clearly expresses to us another division. And this division is between those people who seek God for personal gain and those who seek God for himself. Let's begin with those who seek God for personal gain. They're represented by this great multitude which is spoken of in this passage of Scripture. This is the third Sunday that we have looked at this great multitude. The first time we encountered them, they were being taught by Jesus. They listened to Christ teach. They grew hungry. They had followed Jesus all the way from the western portion of North Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus and his disciples had traveled by boat, they traveled by foot. They were eager to be near Jesus because he had healed many people in their presence and they were eager to get closer to this man to see if he in turn could help them. And as they grew hungry, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 men. The other gospel writers add that not only were the men fed, but there were women and children who were fed. A conservative estimate would give us probably a number of somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10,000 people whom he fed. Amazing. It was a great sign. It indicated who he is. He is one who certainly is compassionate to people in their physical needs, but he's also God and does that which is unprecedented because of his deity. But these people saw that at the end of the day, Jesus, some of them at least did, Make his disciples get into the boat in which they had traveled. Maybe there had been two small boats. 
And he put them in one, reserving one for himself, as the crowd would have deducted when they watched what happened. But here we see this group of apostles going across the sea. And last week we saw how they found themselves in a great storm. The next day, and you can understand why, after having reconsidered what happened the day before when Jesus fed this group of people, and he didn't just feed them, he fed them a feast And he fed them according to what the scripture says in verse 11. If you'd like to take a look at it as a reminder, likewise, likewise, rather, also of the fish as much as they wanted. That's the way I like to be fed. (laughs) As much as I want. These people weren't accustomed to being fed to that level. But in this particular instance, that's what happened to them. They were fed as much as they wanted. So, probably 12 hours had passed, at least, since their last being fed. Probably about mid-morning, they come down to the shore where they had seen Jesus launch his apostles, hoping maybe that he was there. But all they found was one small boat. And Jesus had not taken the boat. They were wondering, where is Jesus? They were eager to encounter him again and to enjoy the benefits of having had that encounter with the Lord. Now look at verse 23. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So one wonders why this fleet of other small boats, why had they come and they had come from the northwestern shore, the area where Jesus hung out. His headquarters were in Capernaum. They came from this town, Tiberias, which was a bustling city, as it were, compared to the sleepy fishing village of Capernaum. But nevertheless, they had come from that place. Why would they have come? Well, they would have come because they had heard that Jesus had gone over there to the other side, that seven-mile trip by boat, and a lot of people had walked over there, and they saw it as a business opportunity, probably. They were going to use their small boats as taxis to taxi or ferry the people back across to the other side. And the Bible says in verse 24, when the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats. They hitched a ride, cost them some money perhaps, and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus because they knew that was Jesus' headquarters. And verse 25 says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It was a mystery to them. The empty boat, the puzzle was solved when they got to Capernaum and found Jesus there. And then look at how Jesus answers them. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves. And were filled. Why did they seek the Lord? They sought Him for personal gain. And you may say, well, Mike, you're being a little harsh on these people. They were not people who were well-to-do for the most part. They were poor people and Jesus had fed them. And they were just pursuing Him to be fed again. And I understand that. But Jesus had a bone to pick with them, didn't He? You seek me, he says, not because you saw signs. And what are signs for in the book of John? Signs are designed so that we can be pointed 
to Jesus, especially identifying him as God. Not simply a fine specimen of humanity, which he was. He was the finest, but also because of his deity, especially because of his deity. And it's been said by one commentator on this passage of Scripture that unfortunately these people sought the loaves from Jesus. They didn't seek Jesus from the love in their heart. They wanted Jesus to do something for them, for personal gain. Now let me stop. Is it wrong for you and for me to ask Jesus to give us things? It's not. In fact, Jesus teaches us. He says, call to me and I will answer you and I'll tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. So the Lord encourages us. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. He also goes on after having said that in the book of James. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you ask for on yourself. So there is the hint that these people were pursuing Jesus for personal means, personal ends. We know that the Lord also says that we are to ask the Lord for our daily bread. I'll never forget reading what one commentator said about this. His name was Dr. Lynch. And Dr. Lynch said about that Petition, give us this day our daily bread. He learned about this, uh, Dr. Lynch did, and he said, it's worth noting that Jesus did not say, give us this day our daily cake. He said, give us this day our daily bread. Now, sometimes the Lord gives us cake, I think, anyway. I'm glad He does. And you probably are, too. He gives us, the Bible says in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, all things richly to enjoy. So the Lord is pleased when we find joy in the things which He gives us. But we must be careful not to transition from seeking the Lord for Himself to seeking the Lord for what the Lord can do for us. So it's not wrong to come to the Lord for our material needs. It's not wrong to come to the Lord if we're seeking a mate, to be our life mate. The Lord says we're not to be unequally yoked. And it's right to ask the Lord for a godly mate. In fact, I would say you're cheating yourself and you're going in the wrong direction if you don't want someone to be your, your wife or your husband. I remember at the top of the list, at least I like to think so today, 46 years later, at the top of my list was that my wife would be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And lo and behold, the Lord answered that prayer. He gave me a Christian wife who loved the Lord very deeply. And how grateful I am for His having done that for me. Does the Lord frown upon it when you and I come to Him and ask Him to heal us of illnesses? To the contrary. The Bible says in the book of Psalm 103 that He heals all our diseases. There's no 
ailment known to mankind that God has not or cannot heal. But he does not always heal in this life finally. We know that. The evidence is clear. People die, correct? Even people who have experienced exceptionally good health, they die. It's amazing. And the Bible talks about an event in the life of Paul. Paul, speaking of one of his disciples, whose name was Trophimus, he said, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. And Miletus was a town in the vicinity of Ephesus, which today would be discovered in Turkey. And so he left this man sick. And we know about the Apostle Paul. He was used by God to heal a ton of people. But evidently, he couldn't see the healing power of God through him as it related to this man, Miletus. And he left him sick. He prayed over him undoubtedly. He laid hands on him undoubtedly. The Bible says in the book of James, is any of you sick? And the instructions are clear. Call for the elders that they may come and anoint you with all oil and pray the prayer of faith over you. What's instructive for us in understanding that, first of all, if you're sick, the word sick does not mean you stubbed your toe or you have a common cold. It means that you're flat of your back. That's the word that is used here by James. It's when you're really sick. You call for the elders and they come. Our elders are happy to pray for people. We're not happy that they're sick, but we make a habit of praying for people who call us to pray for them in obedience to the Word of God. Now, the word which is used for anointing is one of two words which are available in the New Testament language. One of those words is the word creo, and the word creo is the word from which the word Christos is derived. Christos, you hear Christ in Christos. And it's the word for Messiah or Christ in the New Testament. And the word from which Christos is derived is a word Mashiach from Hebrew, which means Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. And when people became kings in the Old Testament era, when people became priests in the Old Testament era, how did they get inaugurated in their ministry? They would be anointed with oil. The oil would be poured over them. And the word which is uniformly used is the word creo. That word is not chosen by the Holy Spirit and given to us by James when he says, if any of you is sick, let him call for the elders and they will come to you and anoint you with oil. The word which is used is the word alepho. This word means to rub in to the surface of one's Skin. It was a practice in that day, and it's a practice which I'm told has seen quite a revival even in our city of using oils to treat people who have certain ailments. I was talking to Eric the other day. I mean, we have very deep theological discussions. And I was saying, Eric, do you see this wart on my forefinger? He said, yes. And he said, Jordan, his wife, she can help you with that. And I said, how? Because it's driving me batty. And he said, well, she's got some oil that she has put on warts before. 
and helped other people with, and they go away. I have a story about this. When I was about five years old, I had a wart on my finger. It was on that finger. I'll never forget it. It was a big seed wart. It's gross. Big old seed wart. And my grandmother, Johnson, said, You know, Mike, if you will steal a dirty dish rag and rub it on that wart and then go bury it, that wart will go away. Well, I believe my grandmother. She was trustworthy. So I stole one of her dish rags. She was inviting me to be a thief. I think that's the only time I've ever stolen anything in my life. But you know what? Stealing paid off. Because I did that, and I remember going to the ditch that separated her property from the neighbors, and I sort of sneaked in there and I took a stick and dug deep enough to put that dirty dish rag in there, and it went away. I don't know what that has to do with this sermon, but it sure is a good story. (laughs) But the point is that when the Lord tells us to call the elders to anoint us with oil, the point would be for medicinal purposes. Remember, modern medicine was not around in the era of the New Testament. So it would not be showing any lack of faith on your part or mine if we became sick and we consulted a doctor. There's nothing unbiblical about that. In fact, I would suggest there is precedence for it in that particular command. But that is secondary to having people of faith to pray over you for healing. We know God heals people directly through praying. I have been healed directly through praying, just like that, a handful of times. And you can be too. The Lord wants us to call on Him for this kind of help. Also, the Lord would have us to call upon Him for fulfillment. How do we know that? Because He says this, He says about Himself, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. He's not talking about material prosperity here, primarily at least. He's talking about spiritual fulfillment. Be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the Lord's will for us. But what we have to guard against is guarding against pursuing the Lord for what He can do for us. He does things for us out of His heart of kindness. He loves us. But we must guard against substituting what He can do for us for our just pursuing Him for who He is. We must not pursue God. We were never created to pursue God primarily for personal gain. We must understand that if we focus on our needs to the point of focusing on ourselves, we are pursuing the Lord for the wrong reason. Any kind of self-centeredness is sinful. It's the essence of sin to focus on self rather than to focus on the Lord. We need to get our minds off of ourselves when we are experiencing some sort of difficulty and 
we will find ourselves as we refocus on the Lord for who He is, we will find an incredible peace coming over us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever stopped to think there's no guarantee in that statement that you or I will get an answer to our prayer? What is the guarantee? we will have an uncommon peace that's worth much more than anything we could ever hope for. It's priceless. A quick illustration, one that you're familiar with from the Bible, about the great man of faith, Abraham. He is presented in both testaments of our Bible as the prototype of what genuine faith is. And there was no greater act of faith on his part than when he took orders from God to take his son, who by this time would have been a preteen, maybe teenager, take him to a certain spot to sacrifice him to the Lord. There is no mention of a debate between Abraham and the Lord. I'm sure he puzzled over it, but he went ahead and obeyed. And the writer of Hebrews teaches us that he took him there And he believed that if God didn't provide an alternate to his son for sacrifice, he would raise his son Isaac from the dead after Abraham had slain him in obedience to the Lord. You know the rest of the story. An angel came, and as Abraham was getting ready to cut the jugular vein and drain the blood from his son and burn his body as a burnt offering on the altar, the angel stopped him. And he heard the bleating of a ram in the thicket, and that ram became the substitute sacrifice. Well, we hear about this, and we think about Abraham. What did that mean to Abraham? What did that boy mean to him? I would say to you, that boy meant everything to him. It was his legacy. It was through that son that you and I, are actually being blessed today if we know Jesus Christ. Because it was through the seed of Isaac that Jesus was born. And so without Christ, we would be without hope, correct? And so here we see this man who had this son, his only son. Now, let's pause just a moment. Was he a pauper? I'm talking about Abraham. Was he? No. In fact, he's described with this word, rich. He had cattle, he had sheep, he had camels, he had servants. He was a wealthy man. He had all of that. The Lord had given it to him. There's no evidence in the text of Scripture that he ever asked the Lord for those things. He just gave those things to him. Why? Because he pursued God for God. I'm not saying if I pursue God, I'm going to get wealthy. It hasn't happened yet. And I've been doing this pursuit for 45 years. But let me tell you what. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Those things money can't buy. Those things position can't buy. Those things pride can't buy. They can't buy any of this. And this is what the Bible says. Godliness with contentment 
is great gain. Abraham was a godly man. A.W. Tozer, one of the great saints of the 20th century, wrote an essay on Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son. And this is what he entitled it. The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. Abraham was a steward of his riches. He was a steward of his relationships with Sarah and with their son Isaac. But he knew he didn't own them. They were gifts to him for his stewarding, for his to take care of. And he knew that. And here's the key for you and me to get set free of those things that we believe might finally fulfill us. Those things we need to say, Lord, thank You for giving them to me. I know I don't deserve them, Lord, but I am grateful. I know that You say in Your Word that You give me the power to make wealth. Thank You, Lord, for giving me a mind. Thank You, Lord, for giving me an educational opportunity. Thank You, Lord, for giving me an employment opportunity. Thank You. And thank You for moving in my heart to want to develop my talents and to do well with what You've given me. But Lord, remind me that these things in the final analysis aren't mine. They belong to You. So help me to treat them accordingly. Job's story is one that's well known. I'm not going to go into detail, but we know he lost his family all at once. Ten children and their children, and their spouses probably, in a catastrophe. He lost his fortune. He lost his fame because he was considered to be the most highly regarded person in all of the Middle East. And because of those things which happened to him, the loss of fortune and family, it was thought that he was being punished by God for the loss of those things. And then... He lost his future because he came to contract what seemed to be a fatal illness. He lost it all. And in a moment of very much transparency, and I would have done it long before he ended up doing it, this is what he said, it profits a man nothing to serve the Lord. Wow. He was revealed. This was his sin, I think. He lived in a tit-for-tat relationship. God did something for him. He did something from God for God. God did something else. He did something else for the Lord. It was that kind of relationship. God, let's have a deal. You do for me and I'll do for you. And we'll just keep doing this all along, Lord. That is not the way to relate to God. You're seeking your own personal desire instead of making Him your desire. Seeking the Lord. So, there are people who sometimes, under the guise of seeking God, really aren't seeking God at all. They're seeking personal gain. What God can do for me. What's in it for me, God? God doesn't take too kindly to that. What God wants us to do, instead of pursuing personal gain, He wants us to pursue a personal relationship with God, with Him. That's what He wants from our lives. Let's look at verse 27. Jesus says to this group who had followed Him across the Sea of Galilee once, 
from west to east and now back from east to west seeking Him. And He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves that were filled. Do not work, verse 27 says, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. Now, who is the Son of Man? It's Jesus, certainly. For on Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. The seal, you perhaps know, was something which authenticated a document, for instance, that a king would send by a courier, and he would have the document rolled up. It would have his signature on the inside, but the thing that authenticated it was the seal upon it. His seal in wax upon it. What this is saying, and what Christ would have us to understand, is that He, the Son of Man, gives eternal life. It's a gift. For on Him, that is Jesus, the Father, has set His seal. So when we see Jesus, we see God. This is why, when asked by Philip, Lord, show us the Father and is it enough for us, that Jesus says, if you've seen Me, Philip, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You and I need to look no further than to the person of Jesus Christ to know who God is. He is God. In the beginning was the Word speaking of Him. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas, isn't it? And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let's look at the response of this group of people. They said therefore to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Isn't it interesting that instead of saying, Who is the Son of Man? This One who can give us eternal life. Who can give us the food that leads to eternal life. Who is He? But they skip that question. They go to the question, What must we do? And isn't that native to us? We want to do good works. And this is why the Bible says, You have been saved by faith through grace, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man should boast. Here's what happens. If I can do something that I'm proud of for God, then guess who's going to get the credit? I'm going to get the credit because I think I did it. Now, I did do it, but I didn't do it alone. The power to do it was given to me by Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus has given me eternal life. And this is eternal life, that we may know Jesus Christ, is what the Bible says. And the Bible says, Jesus Himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. And His life in us ensures that we are capable of doing those things which will honor Him and bring glory to God the Father and to Jesus the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, look again, I want to go over it one more time. Verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's odd, isn't it? What is the work that God would have you and me to do? It's to believe in Jesus. And 
This is important. Please hear what the Lord is saying. What He's saying is, faith is the avenue that your relationship to God travels on. And it's through Jesus and trusting in Christ alone that we have eternal life. I remember reading a story set in the early 19th century in England. And most of the towns in England are built around a square, we would say a plaza here in the southwest. And there had been an evangelist who had come there and gotten permission to set a tent up in the middle of the town. And he preached there for several weeks, actually. And many people came to faith. The day that the the event ended, and the people who were responsible for taking the tent down were taking it down, a man who had come several times but had yet to give his life to Christ, he came and he saw that this meeting was over. And he came to one of the workmen who was taking the tent down. And he said, what must I do to be saved, he said. And the man looked at him and he said, it's too late. He said, it's too late. This is over, but is it too late? He says, it's too late. Because almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ did the work for your salvation. He did for you what you could never do. He died for your sins so that you could receive the gift of eternal life. It's not of works. It's of the grace of God. Well, I'd like to say more about that, but hopefully you understand this, that the work of God is a work of faith. As I finish this morning, I want to talk about how can we see God? Is there a prescription in Scripture for our seeking God in the right way? Yes, there is. The first thing I would allude to is found in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. There needs to be an urgency about our seeking the Lord. He's not always going to be speaking to our hearts. He's not always going to be knocking on our heart's door. Look, if the Lord is impressing you to Seek Him. Don't delay. Seek Him now. Call on Him while He may be found. And it's not a one-time seeking. In First Chronicles 16.11, the Bible says, Seek His presence continually. How frequently are we to be seeking the Lord? Continually we are to seek the Lord. Not occasionally. Our primary Occupation, a better way of saying it, our preoccupation in life should be to seek the Lord. We're to seek Him, not casually, but wholeheartedly. God says in the book of Jeremiah 29.13, You will seek Me and you will find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. We can't be on again casual about this. It should be a matter of our yielding our hearts fully to the Lord, setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. In 
Psalm 63.1, David, that great man after God's heart, said this to the Lord. He says, O Lord, You are my Lord. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. There's a desperation in that petition to the Lord. That statement of what really motivated David. And there should be a sense of this desperation in our hearts too. We seek Him that way. And we seek His face, not His hand. Once more, I appeal to something which David wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In response to something the Lord had said to him, He said, Lord, You said to me, seek My face. My heart says to You, Your face I shall seek, O Lord. From his heart, he sought the Lord. He sought the face of the Lord. People who seek the Lord for personal gain, those people, listen, they're seeking the hand of God. They're not seeking the face of God. Many of you are married. Some of you are contemplating marriage. And you're pursuing a mate. When I was dating my wife, I never remember spending time alone with her looking at her hands. I never did. I want to look her in the eyes. I want to look in her face. Why? That's how you get to know a person. Looking in that person's face. The lack of knowledge of God is directly related to our seeking His hand, not His face. We seek a relationship with Lord. If we have a right relationship with God, everything else is taken care of. We need to trust the Lord in that sense. So, seek His face, not His hand. And what you'll discover is, He will do lots of things for you because you have sought Him for the right reason. He will supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Let me finish with a quick covering of what we read in the book of Philemon, verses 1 through 18. The story, of course, is the story of a man named Philemon. He was a man of God. He was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. More importantly, he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He had a slave named Onesimus. The word Onesimus means useful. And this man Onesimus had become less than useful. In fact, he'd become a thief. He had run away. According to Roman law, if you owned a slave, the slave ran away, you had the legal right, if you found that slave, if you wanted to, to kill him. And where did Onesimus go? The place, undoubtedly, that many runaway slaves went. To Rome. He got lost in a big city. Colossae, which was a rather small town in what is now Turkey, It was a small place. He went quite a ways and he stole money probably or goods that could be translated in money to get his passageway there and to live off of once he got there. When Onesimus found himself there, however, as God would have it, he ends up being introduced to Paul who was in prison. How that happened, I don't know. But he found his way. The Holy Spirit moved in there through friends who probably knew him and also knew Paul. And he came to know Jesus. That's what Paul says, didn't he? He says, he is my son. 
That is, Onesimus. And by implication, just like you, Philemon, remember, you owe your spiritual life to my teaching you about Jesus. And Onesimus became his son, and he said he was begotten in my imprisonment, Paul said that. And then, do you notice the way he wrapped it up in verse 18? He wrapped it up by saying, if he still owes you something, and who brought the letter back, by the way? It was Onesimus. That took a lot of courage on his part. He was being obedient to the Lord. That's what happens when you get saved. You make things right. You obey the laws of the land, even though you may not agree with them. And he knew he had to go back. He risked his life. He went back. And he went back. And so Onesimus, he says, Paul says to Philemon, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. Now let me spiritualize this for a moment. Let's say, in a sense, Philemon was in the position of God in relationship to Onesimus. Why? He could have his life, and he had every reason to take his life. This man was a thief, and he had run away from him. Who was Paul? He was Christ in this situation to both men. He was Christ in the sense that he imitated Christ, and these two men had come to know Jesus through him. And what does he say to Philemon, who represents God, charge it to my account. Do you know what Jesus Christ says about you and me? When we are considered by God the Father, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ for our eternal life, not our good works, but what He's done for us and what He's done for us alone, do you know what? Jesus Christ, when we will stand before God at the end of time, He will say, charge Mike's sin to me. I died for Him on the cross. And all the people, the Scripture says, in the world. He died for us. And Mike trusted me. And he has been imperfect, Father. It's clear to you and to me. But he is your child. And he is my friend. And I'm bringing him to you. Charge his debt to me. There's a song that's popularized. It's not heard very much anymore. But it says, We owed a debt we could not pay. Speaking of Jesus, He paid a debt He did not owe. Jesus did that for us, didn't He? As a postscript, historians tell us that there was a man at the end of the first century named Onesimus who became a bishop of a city in Asia Minor. I would suggest that man was Onesimus. He had been useless to a degree, even though his name meant useful. But he became useful to his master who undoubtedly freed him. And he became his pastor, the bishop. Amazing what God does, isn't it? One last statement from the Lord. The Lord says through the prophet Amos, He says, seek the Lord and you will live. You want real life? Well, just seek the Lord for Himself. He will give you eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful gospel is Your gospel. And I'm praying for people here today who have sought You for the wrong reason, that they would... In this moment, 
admit that to themselves and then confess that to you and ask that you would empower them to have the right motive for seeking you and they would find their greatest joy and occupation being that of seeking you with all their heart. I pray that for myself, Lord. You know that there's much room for growth in my heart. Please forgive me for putting myself ahead of you so often. We pray that you would not let us forget this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.